The problem that we really see is that the federal mechanism for creating disaster preparedness, which this is a disaster that farmers should be equipped to be prepared for, they're not receiving the funding or the training or the incentive really to be prepared. Instead, they're incentivized to grow as many chickens as large as they can as quickly as they can. And that isn't what the focus should be on. The focus should be on ensuring that these animals are treated humanely and healthily and that food that winds up in our grocery stores is safe. This is really an example of our very fragile food system cracking as a result of just one interruption in this supply chain that, yes, is now putting American consumers in a tight spot. And as you said, because these diseases are very frequently zoonic, putting all of us at risk. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi. I want to start today by sharing a story of me as a little girl when I was nine years old. At that age, I had to swallow a couple of really hard pills. The first was that my beloved grandmother had skin cancer and her prognosis was not good. As an internal geek myself, I started to read research journals at the library instead of going to story time because I wanted to understand what was happening to my grandma. That was actually the moment when I first learned about animal testing, LD50 levels, the point at which 50% of animals in a study die, and the many atrocities that we subject animals to in the name of medical research and in the world of farming as well. This is also when I led my first petition, going door to door in a small lumber town of Southern Oregon, trying to get people to sign off on a petition to keep the rhesus macaques from being used in medical research. So while I haven't covered much about animals yet on this podcast, I feel like it's about time that I start. Last week, we talked about the welfare of bees and how we should just let them be. We talked with Hank Speck to learn about how he is actually turning his farm into a bee sanctuary. We've talked about how farming operations, the industrial farming complex, and our love of synthetic petroleum-based chemicals, including glyphosate, otherwise known as Roundup, have decimated populations of other pollinators even, including monarch butterflies, as well as many other insects. We've also mentioned here and there how and why CAFOs, these are concentrated animal farming operations, are critically bad for our planet, our people, and yes, the animals themselves. So today we're going to deepen that part of our conversation as I'm joined by today's guest, A.J. Albrecht. A.J. Albrecht serves as the Managing Director of Mercy for Animals in the United States and Canada, having joined them back in 2019 as the organization's first U.S. Government Affairs team member. A licensed attorney, A.J. has a plethora of experience defending animals in our legal system, 
She's the founder of the East Orange Animal Alliance and is a frequent speaker on animal advocacy, who has published on topics relating to our food system, farmed animals, and animal law. It's time to bring you to stage, AJ. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Karina. Now, I think I set the stage for you to tell a story, perhaps about what brought you to this line of work and what seems like already a lifelong path in defense of the, well, those that can't defend themselves. Yeah, and reflecting, I think it has been a lifelong path, although I don't think I realized that until my career had already begun. Similar to you, though, Karina, I grew up loving animals and found myself trying to learn as much as I could about animals. I shared my home growing up thanks to an animal-loving mom with everything ranging from a tarantula to your average dogs and cats, and feel very lucky that I had that exposure as a child. When I found myself in law school, there was not an animal law track. I actually didn't even realize that that was an option for me. Instead, I found myself doing quite a bit of work throughout law school and in the beginning of my legal career, defending victims of domestic violence. And some of the most impactful cases that I had the opportunity to work on were those where non-human animals were also victims of domestic violence. And I found myself advocating even harder than I was in the rest of my cases when I knew that these defenseless animals were being used in these cases to further hurt the survivor or the victim, if you will. And from there, my eyes started opening to opportunities in animal law. I first was working for a nonprofit organization focused on dogs and cats, but as is the way with many advocates, once you start dipping your toe into a social justice issue, you realize that you can do more and more. And that's what led me to my current organization, Mercy for Animals, which is focused on farmed animals, which in my opinion, are the animals that truly need us most. Mercy for Animals' mission is to construct a just and equitable food system. And our vision is to see a world where animals are respected, protected, and free. So an organization that more of our audience might be familiar with, just getting to know you here today is PETA. Are you working in some collaborative way with organizations like PETA or have any relation to them? We work in collaboration with quite a few other animal protection organizations, yes, including PETA in some instances and some coalitions. We believe that in order to crack this incredibly difficult issue that we've chosen to focus on, we're stronger together. Each of our organizations has different focuses, different niches, and different interventions to try and liberate animals as much as possible. So because of that, we do frequently focus on what we have in common and how we can work together with other organizations. Wow. I love that answer. I know some people might be diametrically opposed to certain activist groups, particularly if they see them as more fringe. But at the same time, much like when we talk about climate activism, it takes collaboration across many different categories for people to actually push for change and for the in-defense Let's, it's not that they're indefensible. They just don't have the ability to defend themselves truly. So they are at our mercy, which is part of the reason why I love the name Mercy for Animals. It feels like it's on the nose, but in a way that helps us really 
step into the power that we could have to protect them. So I love that. Now, let's talk about the impact of industrial farming on the environment and on local communities. What have you learned thus far in your work? So much. It's really sad when you start digging into the impact of industrial animal agriculture, or as we colloquially call it, factory farming on our planet, on humans and on animals, of course. If you look at the life cycle of greenhouse gas emissions associated with how we're producing the vast majority, and by that 99% of the food in the United States, it's creating more greenhouse gas emissions than planes, trains, and automobiles combined. And that's just a dirty secret that most Americans and most folks who consume food from the grocery store just don't realize. We see farming and the agriculture sector in such a positive light, but truly the vast majority of farmers in our country are now exploited by only a handful of behemoth meat companies who have a stronghold on our food system. And as a result, they are quite frankly, destroying the planet. The amount of land, arable land that's being used to grow crops, not for human consumption, but for consumption by livestock is enough to feed the entire world population and end world hunger. But instead we're focused on growing these plants to feed animals and get them as large as we can, as quickly as we can to send them to slaughter and truly it's a broken system that is bound to crack and already has begun cracking. And as a result, we're focused on trying to reform our food system to be more plant focused and to reduce those greenhouse gas emissions and reduce these really devastating climate change impacts that the industrial animal agriculture system is creating. I think, as you mentioned, plant focused. There's a standard, I think, misconception on the part of many people who think plant-based means vegan or that vegan means plant-based and that they're somehow the same thing. And so those that are more of the omnivore, I think sometimes just dismiss the entire package as extreme. I was wondering if you could talk about what it means to be plant-based in this context and the sort of impact that that could create in the way of energy savings, food savings, and also CO2 emission savings. Absolutely. At Mercy for Animals, we really believe in meeting people where they're at. To your point, although of course, in an ideal world, it would be amazing to see everyone go vegan, but we recognize that not everyone is there yet. And many people are just interested in perhaps trying meatless Mondays or shifting one or two meals a week. The data that we've seen shows that the number one individual choice you can make to reduce your CO2E or let's say carbon footprint is by reducing as much as possible and hopefully someday eliminating consumption of animal-based food products. And that doesn't mean you have to go cold turkey overnight, but simply beginning to reduce the amount of those food products you're eating can have a tremendous impact and the reason for that is that it's consumer demand, by and large, that is driving this mass production of meat. What's really striking to look at is that a recent Gallup poll found that more people are veg curious than ever before. However, on the flip side of that coin, we're seeing meat production rising year over year over year. 
And this is despite in 2020, the pork industry, for example, claiming that they needed a tremendous amount of subsidies in order to continue producing in the beginning of the COVID crisis. And then we see when they release their statistics to the USDA years later, they actually had a 300% profit increase during that exact time frame. Does this not remind you of the oil companies? I'm sorry, isn't it exactly the same thing? Absolutely. The way that the government, and that means the taxpayers like you and I, and anyone listening to this are propping up this broken system. It is reminiscent of these other systems that we've since realized should not be receiving the subsidies. And instead, we should be focusing on shifting the way we're producing our food to be more sustainable. The parallels are daunting. And I think it's because what we're talking about here is big pharma, big food. When a business gets to that size where there's so much governmental assistance and subsidies for production of food, as a for example, then they just figure out ways to take advantage of taxpayer contributions and what governmental assistance programs are available. Those things that small businesses can't take advantage of. It's just astonishing. I recently had on the podcast my friend Helbard Alcassade, and he has a farm that I'm sure you'd love called the Little Hill Sanctuary, where he rescues animals that would otherwise end up on plates and gives them a forever home. And so they've been really challenged with the weather systems that have been coming through. We had storm after storm after storm hit us here on the central coast of California. And it just meant that their farm was literally like, like underwater. Now, speaking of pork, the pigs that they have were happy as pigs and shit. So <laughs> literally, they were like, there's <laughs> no keeping them out of the mud. They're thrilled, right? But everybody else is struggling to keep like literally the, the levee from breaking essentially and bringing too much water onto the property. Now they've had to make a lot of shifts and changes into how they build their corrals and fencing and everything else to try and keep water at bay. But the reality is when you have two atmospheric rivers come back to back, my office flooded, it's impacting us. And then he actually shared that he had no subsidies available to him to help with these animals because these animals weren't considered food animals. And if they had been considered food animals, suddenly government assistance is there to support you. We also recently saw, and this was something we touched on as well in that episode, the bird flu epidemic that was sweeping across and, and is still problematic here from really coast to coast was creating situations where entire flocks are just dispatched or killed because there's fear of it spreading to yet more animals. And we also have our food systems that can become disrupted. Now, of course, many of the problems that we're seeing are the result of human encroachment on animals or us creating situations where the animals don't have enough space to grow and thrive. And then something like an avian flu can spread from wild bird to domestic bird and back again and dramatically impact not only the animal life populations, but also then our ecosystems because these uh, the wildlife falls out of balance too. It's not like the avian flu just stays on the flock in a CAFOs farm. It could spread from your shoe to the wild to then another bird, right? Yeah. Wow. So you touched on so much and I'll try and touch on a few things. With regard to the avian flu, 
there's been so much in the news recently about the price of eggs and anyone who's grocery shopped recently knows that eggs are expensive right now. And that is largely due to this avian flu outbreak. And what you described, Karina, is what the industry calls depopulation, which is a really humane washed, in my opinion, way of saying mass on farm killing. Really what that means is that these animals who already have horrific lives that are in confinement, most of them don't see the light of day literally throughout their short lives, they are killed on the farm or at the CAFO, the controlled animal feeding operation, concentrated animal feeding operation, rather than going to slaughter. And the way that they're depopulated is truly horrific. For poultry, a standard practice is to use foam, which looks very much like the foam you would see in an attic in between rafters. It's water-based foam that is sprayed all over the birds until they drown and suffocate. And it's a slow and painful, horrific death. So this depopulation that we're hearing about, yes, you hit the nail on the head that it's largely preemptive. The problem that we really see is that the federal mechanism for creating disaster preparedness, which this is a disaster that farmers should be equipped to be prepared for, they're not receiving the funding or the training or the incentive really to be prepared. Instead, they're incentivized to grow as many chickens as large as they can as quickly as they can. And that isn't what the focus should be on. The focus should be on ensuring that these animals are treated humanely and healthily and that food that winds up in our grocery stores is safe. This is really an example of our very fragile food system cracking as a result of just one interruption in this supply chain that, yes, is now putting American consumers in a tight spot. And as you said, because these diseases are very frequently zoonic, putting all of us at risk. I also wanted to touch on the water in California. I'm down here in San Diego. We've also had more water than we have had in a very long time down here, although we are still in a crisis when it comes to the Colorado River. The Colorado River and Lake Mead, Lake Powell are, quite frankly, drying up. We are reaching Deadpool levels, and it's scary. And the eight states that rely on this river cannot come to an agreement about how to slow this evaporation of that river. But when you really start digging into it, it's clear that the current driver of losing that water is livestock production. I think it's 79% of the water in the Colorado River is used for crops that are being grown, specifically alfalfa, for livestock. Humans don't eat alfalfa. It's being grown for cows. And many of those cows are in China. We are growing this alfalfa and using a tremendous amount of water to grow it and then shipping those crops overseas. Of course, there's climate impacts there as well. And as a result, folks like you and I in California and others in Utah, Nevada and surrounding states, we're losing our water supply. And when you really start peeling back the layers of the onion on how much we are prioritizing meat production over the safety and health and truly human rights. It's really shocking. Yeah. 
As somebody who has owned horses for a good chunk of my life, I watched the alfalfa prices skyrocket and droughts a decade ago. And again, what we're seeing is that happen now. Those that are buying hay recreationally may have been paying a decade ago 20 bucks for a bale of alfalfa, and today they're paying triple that. It's something where we are directly impacted by these things in a season, from season to season. We talked about the fact that we're getting fewer cuttings from every season, and this has to do directly with water allocations because farmers of alfalfa and grass hay and oat and all of these different seed grasses that are grown to feed livestock and recreational animals, they are not getting into their sixth and seventh cuttings anymore. They might be getting three or four per season just because they haven't been able to get the water allocations they had prior. And we also discussed this in a prior episode when I interviewed a cattle rancher turned, he's like in the world of IoT, Internet of Things, optimization and everything, right? And he shared that on part of his farm, he's growing cannabis, right? And that if you go from one season to the next, and let's say you only needed X amount of water to grow your crop, even if you needed less than you were allocated the prior year, that farmers will make the judgment call to just go ahead and say, oh, no, no, I need exactly the same, even if they could have made the water go further, simply because it affects future allocations and that they have this fear point of where it's heading. Now, what does this mean today? It means that most of the hay that we get by mid-season in the state of California, even when we're under this deluge of water that we're getting all at once, it's not enough to sustain the summer growing season for these grains. We then start going from California to Oregon. Oh, shoot, there's fires in Oregon. Where else are we going to go for that? Okay, Colorado. Oh, no, not enough there. Okay, Utah. And so suddenly we're both expending a lot more fuel to get hay from one area to another, but we're also just running too lean on these resources to the point where those that have horse farms or other animal farms are shifting to things like cubes instead of their typical flakes of hay. For those that are familiar, you understand what I mean by cubes. And these aren't necessarily preferred for their animals. They're more likely if they're horses to end up with colic or something like that. So you have to soak them and do other things to mitigate whatever feed you're able to get, which means that all people are essentially impacted. All the animals we're farming are essentially impacted. And I think you're absolutely right that we need to shift how we're running things. And when we talk about plant-based, this is something I have a fair amount of knowledge around. I have another podcast I host called Nutrition Without Compromise. And on that show, we focus on nutrition and health without compromising your ethics or the health of the planet. I bring on a variety of doctors and medical professionals, some of whom I've also hosted on this show, including Dr. William Lee, who wrote a book called Eat to Beat Disease. He's releasing another book called Eat to Beat Your Diet on March 21st. And one of the things that these researchers have in common, these doctors that are really on the cutting edge of what nutrition science means, they're saying something resounding and clear and repeated from one to the other. And that is that we need to go to mostly plant foods. We need to look at meat, if anything, as a condiment. We need to start consuming more fresh foods, less processed foods. And we need to do what we can to get back into the kitchens and engage with foods that's healthy instead of things that come with a barcode. And that is 
pretty consistent. Even if this humane aspect isn't enough to drive you towards going more plant-based, it's my belief that with time we'll all end up there anyway because we're talking about our waistlines, we're talking about our health, we're talking about longevity, and ultimately safe food for the long term. I know that was a bit of a soapbox for a moment, but I'll, <laughs> I'll leave it to you to comment on. Yeah, thank you. I hope you're right. I hope that we are on the precipice of the beginning of a plant-based future. I do think that, again, going back to what we spoke about in the beginning of this chat about meeting people where they're at, I think that having more accessible, affordable, and delicious plant-based options is absolutely key to making this a reality for the majority of consumers. The fact of the matter is right now that the the way you just described of eating, of eating very fresh food right now is expensive. It's expensive for many families and we need to change that. Right now, Mercy for Animals is working hard on a piece of legislation that has been introduced by Senator Cory Booker in the Senate that's called the Industrial Agriculture Accountability Act. And there are many titles to this act, and you can, of course, check it out. But in a nutshell, to really sum it up, it shifts the responsibility of this broken food system that we've just described through various anecdotes and statistics. It shifts that responsibility back onto the factory farming industry. And it essentially says this is a problem and a broken system that has been created by factory farming. And it's exploiting not just animals, but consumers, farmers, people who live nearby these factory farms and don't have clean air or water and are dying of alarming diseases that are as a result of this pollution. It shifts this responsibility back to those, to big ag, as we call it. And it makes it so that they need to be the ones to take responsibility for this and start making some changes. And it's sad that sounds radical. But against the backdrop of during COVID, we really saw light shone on our slaughterhouses and we saw slaughterhouse workers not even able to receive personal protective equipment and dying in rates higher than folks who were incarcerated simply because they were forced to go to work and forced to keep working through the pandemic when the, most of us were privileged enough to shelter in place and stay home. This is a problem that we're working hard to address, and it goes hand in hand while we shift that responsibility to also partnering as much as possible with corporations and urging them to have more plant-based options. It's important that when we go to a movie theater or to a restaurant or to a fast food chain or really anywhere, that there's an option that doesn't include animal food products. And we're seeing more and more of that. There's so much innovation happening in the food space, and we're working hard to create those shifts across the board as much as possible. AJ, I think you just revealed I might want to have my first politician come on this <laughs> show. I don't know. Do I want to interview Cory Booker? I think I do. I think I'd like to talk to him about this. What do you think the chances are of it passing? unadulterated, at least to the point where it's no longer meaningful? So unfortunately, the vast majority of agricultural policy in the United States is dictated by the Farm Bill, which this Industrial Agriculture Act is what's called a marker bill, meaning it seeks to amend the Farm Bill 
that every five years is just passed the same as it was five years ago, unless there are amendments to it. Knowing how difficult that already is to get changes to the farm bill, this is going to be a long road. And really, we are not just trying to pass a policy, but we're shifting a narrative. We're really trying to reframe the public's understanding of what farming and agriculture means in the United States and make it clear that people are suffering as a result of the way we're farming and as a result of the way that we're creating our food, not just people, not just our planet, not just animals, but truly the entire system is broken and exploitative. That's a very long way of saying that this is a first step in what we anticipate to be a very long road. We will be very happy if any part of this act passes. And we believe that changes that it makes are incremental and reasonable. And time will tell whether folks are ready to really take a hard look at the way we're, we're creating our food and what we're relying on as food. Yeah. You've mentioned a couple of times here that here in some way at least connected to this idea of incrementalism. Do a little bit better today, perhaps consume a little bit less meat, perhaps choose that that product that comes with the humane certified badge. I'm, I'm not honestly sure how much that means, but I'm sure it's more than just getting the cheapest egg that you can buy from the store. And I also really love the simple way that Jonathan Safran Foer put it in his work, We Are the Weather. He, in fact, even produced an essay from that book that is in Paul Hawkins' Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation. And in that work, he suggests that we just stop consuming animal products before dinner. And that by making that simple shift, that we'll be both supporting a movement away from overconsumption of animal products, reducing our consumption of saturated fat even, because perhaps not the butter, the yogurt, the cheese, the dairy, all of those things that might be endemic in your diet already. And then you have a reasonable portion of an animal product with your dinner. You haven't gone vegan. You might even be able to consider yourself mostly plant-based, but you're essentially minimizing the animal that you consume on the daily. Another individual that I really have a lot of respect for is David Moscow. I did interview him on this podcast about his work and his book called From Scratch by David Moscow. And he shared in his story when I interviewed him on the show that he has started consuming far less meat since getting more connected to its procurement. As he traveled the world telling the stories ethnographically through his TV show of the same title and doing things like traveling to Peru and living with families at that super high elevation and consuming guinea pigs for dinner, things that we're not used to here, as somebody who even owned guinea pigs as a child, I have three. I don't know if I'd ever be able to manage consuming one. That he got to a space where he just reveres the animal life he's taking. And most dinners now don't even come with an animal component to them. I think it's one part getting reconnected with food because when we have a direct relationship with its procurement, we value it differently. We will not take it for granted the same way that we do when it comes in some plastic packaging or in a bag out of a, a takeout window. That's my perspective anyway. And I'm finding that a lot of people share it, including David Moscow. 
Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I would just say that unfortunately, it's not possible for Americans or Canadians or really most of us who are living in the Western world to be able to go to the grocery store and buy animal-based food products that is from animals that were treated humanely. We've worked very hard on initiatives that would grant animals some really basic protections. For instance, Proposition 12 in California, which was a ballot initiative passed in 2018, And really that entire ballot initiative came down to whether pigs should be allowed to turn around during their entire lifetimes because they are kept in cages about the size of their bodies, female pigs, breeding pigs, and whether egg-laying hens should be allowed to extend their wings while living in a cage. The truth of the matter is that in the United States right now, We don't have the luxury of being able to make the choices that you just described. It is a very difficult thing to be able to buy food that is humanely raised. That's just not how our system is structured right now. So we think it's extremely important to make sure that the options that are available to American consumers are being made available are plant-based as much as possible so that we can keep animals off of our plate and remain healthy and able to afford that food and be able to find it. If folks are going to still consume animal products, that the animal products they are purchasing are at least not coming from cages and crates, coming from cage-free and crate-free conditions. But we're not there yet. As you probably know, the Supreme Court of the United States is right now considering a constitutional challenge to Proposition 12. The meat industry is fighting tooth and nail the will of the Californians that passed that in 2018. And really, again, it comes down to whether or not these animals should be allowed to have enough space to turn around My hope is that plant-based options will continue to be mainstream, that we'll continue to see more and more of them, and that they'll continue to be something that consumers choose over these animal-based products. Yeah. To your point, humane treatment is something I've continually questioned, even when I do see the humane certified on eggs at the grocery store. I think the reality is that so few of us really understand what these things mean. Right. And that's intentional, right? I mean, that's that's the intent industry controlling whether or not controlling the certifications, controlling the humane washing, so to speak. There's a reason why that's confusing and inaccessible for us to understand what it is that we're purchasing. Confused consumer is unable to make smart choices. I will say, I think it's always best, if you can, to invest in your food and actually spend more money on your food, allocate more money so that you can buy the organic options, that you can focus on a broader spectrum of foods. You're not always eating the same 10 things each week. Really just get back into the kitchen and discover these beautiful plant-based foods that are available. Something else I just want to mention as we talk about this is there are options available that are more regeneratively farmed where you do have certain growers of both produce as well as farmers and ranchers that are working to be part of the solution. So I would just advise people in their local areas to try to get their to know their food sources. And if you can be a part of 
a program where you're getting your weekly vegetable box and it's locally grown and in season, that it's going to be more nutrient dense, that you'll eat a wider variety of foods. You will get more creative in the kitchen, which I think is also going to support you long-term as well. And if you are connected to continuing to consume animal products, that you're doing so with knowledge of where it's coming from and supporting local people, not just buying the cheapest thing that you can find at Costco and what a chicken for $6. You can't even raise a chicken for that much. Yeah. Spending more money on food sounds wonderful. Unfortunately, that's <laughs> not possible for everyone. And we yeah. recognize that in order to really make a change, we can't just be targeting those folks like you and me who have the privilege of being able to spend more on food and have a budget that allows us to make those choices. So really, it comes back to shifting this responsibility on our policymakers and on the corporations who are controlling our food system. It's unacceptable that the cheapest products right now are animal-based food products. And we need to be raising our voices and having our elected officials hear us that we want plant-based food products and healthy food products to be accessible and affordable. And until they are, we're going to continue to see health issues. We're going to continue to see folks who live in food deserts struggling with those health issues like heart disease, diabetes, asthma, more than those of us who don't. And that's something that needs to change. And we all have a responsibility to narrow that gap between folks who, who can afford this type of food and those who can't. Because right now you walk into a grocery store and the cheapest products, yes, Costco chicken is a great example. Mercy for Animals released an investigation a couple of years ago on showing the conditions that those $6, $5 Costco chickens are raised and it's horrific. These chickens are being grown so fast that after just a few weeks, they can no longer stand up on their own two feet because they're being grown so fast and so quickly to go to slaughter. Um, and Nick Kristoff wrote a piece in the New York Times breaking that investigation when it was released. And we have had Costco come to the table and make commitments about how they're going to treat their chickens going forward. And we need more of that. We need more of these corporations to be held accountable to the way that they're raising their animals and the way that they're bringing food to market. And hopefully, the more we can shed a light, shed a light on this, the more change we'll see so that more folks can make these choices. Yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Gosh, it's a lot to think about. This can be really overwhelming, I think, for a lot of individuals, especially those that are already saying, I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best and I don't have the pocketbook to be able to go and eat this way all the time, but I'm going to do my best. Now, I will also note that when I go grocery shopping, if I do the produce at a farmer's market, I'm getting my food that is grown locally, typically with a lot less packaging and honestly more affordably than the stuff that I buy at the grocery store. I like to encourage people to engage with things like the farmer's markets that are in their areas because you'll be Getting food that is staying within the local area that's not going on mass trucks and going across state lines or onto a container and shipping from another country to here, you're supporting local economies, you're saving a buck or two here and there. And also, if you are a consumer of eggs, I still eat eggs, I find that I'm able to connect with those at my local farmer's market. They actually 
have pictures of their chickens and their names on them and everything else. It's just a more connected experience. I can go to their farm and see how they're raising their animals. And it's not the standard operating CAFOs type of concentrated chicken raising situation. But here in Santa Cruz County, where I am, a lot of people farm their own. They have their own chickens in their backyard and they raise them lovingly and they, they get the eggs they get each year and even sell them to their friends. So we have some of that here too. And I also just can't help but plug that right now, plant-based egg options are more affordable than eggs. At least oh. they are in my grocery store. If you look right next to those eggs, at least that's how they're organized. Where I shop, you can find some plant-based options that are really delicious and worth a shot. You can compare it just as you would the eggs that you're used to and save some money from your wallet and be saving animals as well. Yeah. There's also even some vegan milks now with the same, they're grown via fermentation. They actually have the same milk proteins in them. So I'm actually sensitive to milk. I can't drink them. Yeah, <laughs> And they have a mouthful feel and taste that is essentially identical to milk. You could theoretically replace milk with that as well. There are a lot of really great plant-based cheeses too. I think the assortment available is just getting to be immense. Absolutely. There's so much innovation. I'm not well versed in that fermentation product that you've just described, but I have tried the Brave Robot ice cream, which is part of that process. And it was funny because my partner considers himself plant-based and comes at it from a real health angle. And he was weirded out by it <laughs> because he thought this is the same as real dairy. I think it's wonderful. The more that we can have innovation and the more that we can have these discussions about our food choices and why we're making our food choices, we as the consumers and as the ones who are eating this food should be the ones who are, are driving these changes. And seeing more and more of these products come to market is, is really exciting because it's making easier for folks to make those choices. I think it's also important to highlight the work that we're doing in the government affairs sphere related to food procurement, which goes back to an earlier part of our conversation. We're working with states and local governments to make plant-based or veg options more of the default and shifting, for instance, cafeterias in state houses and government buildings to having more plant-based options available or perhaps even the default for people who are eating there. And not only do we know, as we've already highlighted, that this helps animals and health and the environment, but it actually saves a lot of money if you shift food purchases away from animal products and towards plant-based ones. Again, just making it easier for folks to make these choices, taking the burden off of the individual and onto the entity, the decision maker to commit to those, those choices and that accessibility. You had this creative term in your onboarding form I had you fill out called transformation. Yes, I would love to talk about it. Transformation is a project of Mercy for Animals that we began back in 2019. And we are partnering with former contract growers. So what that means is a farmer who used to be under contract with one of the large meat companies growing chickens or hogs, or we're not working with any cattle farmers, but perhaps in the future. And they realized how terrible the system was, how they were being driven into debt, how they were impacting their communities and polluting the air. 
and how they were treating animals and they decided they didn't want to be a part of it anymore. And what they're left with is these large CAFO structures. So whether that's a poultry house or a hog house that they don't know what to do with. These are the size of football fields. In many cases, we're talking about very large structures and we're partnering with them to give them the resources and the information they need to grow plants for human consumption, specialty crops. So we have a farmer who is growing mushrooms. It turns out a poultry house, it's dark and a little damp and it's perfect for growing mushrooms. We have another farmer who's growing uh, hemp. And again, the, the houses are a great place for drying that hemp to create things like CBD oil. And we even have a farmer who's using one of their structures as an animal shelter, really come full circle and realize that there was a need for a place to house stray dogs and cats and give them a place to stay until they were adopted. And they've put in kennels inside of that structure. The Transformation Project is really about growing a movement and making a, showing what's possible and creating a replicable model so that future contract farmers, when they look at their options and look at how they can make a choice that betters the world instead of being a part of that factory farming system. It shows them, here's how you can do it. It's sustainable, it's lucrative, and it's using your existing infrastructure. It's been a really exciting project for us thus far. Fantastic. Transformation. Yes. So right. transforming our farms. Yeah. Transformation. Okay. Love that. Now, I have a question for you that relates to some of the vegetarian options that are available that might also come at a very large carbon cost, namely things like the impossible burgers of the world, which I understand are working to disrupt our reliance on something like a standard hamburger that's in the middle of our plate. So I have some respect for it, but I also understand that they're coming under a lot of fire recently, namely because the investment isn't proving out. And perhaps you have an opinion on that because probably relates to subsidies, but I'll leave that on your plate. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. I guess a two-part answer to a two-part question. First, the climate impacts of an impossible burger are less than a beef burger, as you noted. And we believe that, again, we have to have options for everyone, meet people where they're at. And the impossible burger for many, many people is going to open the door to them by being able to get that at Burger King and try that for the first time. We do believe that it's an important part to these reforms that we're working towards to creating a plant-based food system. On the second part, subsidies in short. It's really comparing apples to oranges when you look at these small disruptors in the space, because they are still small and there's so much press and news surrounding some of these plant-based options. But the fact is these are still small businesses when you compare them to these massive of meat companies who benefit from these incredible subsidies and protections by the government. I hate to keep going back to COVID and what happened with slaughterhouses in the meat industry, but it really did shine a light on what's going on. In the previous federal administration, at the beginning of COVID, President Trump actually invoked the National Defense Act that essentially 
makes it mandatory for folks to continue working. I'm, I'm currently blanking on the name of that tool, but it's usually used during wartime. So for example, if there were soldiers who needed ventilators in a hospital, an order, an executive order could be signed to make sure that those resources are pooled during wartimes. It could also be used for manufacturing. Right, exactly. Instead, this was invoked to literally force slaughterhouse doors to stay open and slaughterhouse workers to continue working without the requisite amount of PPE so that meat could continue to be produced and these meat companies could continue to make a profit on top of the billions of dollars of bailout funds. Now, a lot of people got very sick because they also worked closely with one another. That's right. I think when you really compare that this is what these companies are up against, the subsidies that are really so much more than a safety net, they're truly propping up big ag and the meat industry. It really is clear that this, all of the critique, it's comparing apples to oranges. It's not accurate when you start really peeling back the layers of that onion. I have to say, I'm so appreciated your transparency and your willingness to speak so openly. I know that we may have touched on a few trigger points for people today because it's hard to talk about these things without invoking uh, that uncomfortable moment. But it's in my feeling that we all have to get comfortable leaning into that uncertainty in a way so that we can push for change. Thank you so much for that. I'd like to ask you before we part, if there's a question that I haven't asked that perhaps you wish I had, and if so, you could ask and answer it. Yeah, I think I think what I would ask what I would like to answer is do most people think that animal protection is a worthy cause? And the reason I think that's such an important question to answer is that we have so much data showing that the majority of Americans, it's an American data set, do they believe that protecting animals is a worthy cause that we should pay attention to. And even data going one step further, showing that people believe farmed animals and animals raised for food should be treated humanely. And I think that's so important to highlight and underscore, because I know, Karina, the focus of your work is largely on sustainability and climate change, which of course, this is so intertwined and goes hand in hand. But at Mercy for Animals, We're really working to continue centering animals in the conversation and not shying away from that because I think we've done that as a movement for some time now, tried to remind decision makers that yes, we focus on animals, but we also care about climate change and we also care about workers and we also care about health and all of that is true. But there are wonderful organizations who are solely focused on that work, and we're so grateful to partner with them on many of these initiatives. And I think that we should all feel empowered and reminded that non-human animals are also deserving of being centered in this conversation and having advocates that are not afraid to say, I don't want to eat an animal. I don't want to eat, have something on my plate that suffered horrifically at the hands of humans before coming to me. And like you said earlier, I think sometimes that could be a trigger point or it could raise some cognitive dissonance of folks not really wanting to lean in or talk about that. But I think we have to talk about that. And I've been so grateful for the opportunity to talk about it with you today. Thank you again. Something you didn't know before we started this conversation is that I'm also working to shift people to more of a plant-based world through my work. 
I worked for a decade building the fish oil company of Nordic Naturals and have spent the last seven years in the algae exclusive space trying to educate people that this particular ingredient, this particular, the world's first plant, first life on earth can be part of our solution for photosynthetic nature of sequestering carbon and producing oxygen. More than half the air we breathe is from algae, also providing vital nutrition from micronutrients to proteins and omega-3s. And so I see it as part of my penance for the success of an industry and a company that I helped to build to really educate people on the fact that we, we can cut out the fish altogether. We can literally go to a plant source for the proteins, the omegas, Anybody curious about that should check out my other podcast, Nutrition Without Compromise, and also OrloNutrition.com. Orlo Nutrition is the brand I helped to build for <laughs> Baxa Technologies, harnessing the power of the work that they're doing, growing algae photosynthetically and only using green energy to do so. I'll happily share some of that with you if you'd like to try it too. Absolutely. And what a wonderful full circle of it's never too late. It's never not enough. We can all be doing something to make these changes. And it sounds like Karina, you're doing a very big thing, but how exciting. I'm a couple years into the project, this particular one, we're creating more from less. So trying to come from that perspective too, where it's like all these resources that we throw into animal production, it's just insane. It's David and Goliath. It really is. It's so hard to bite off that piece because when you really get to understanding it, when you dig in more deeply, it's, oh my God. Okay. So basically we're growing all this food to grow our food. We grow all this food to feed the animal, to then butcher them and put them on our plate and create a cycle. At every phase of this, we're expelling a lot more carbon. At every phase of this, we actually have foods that we have labeled as animal grade. So even when we have a surplus of them, we can't feed them to humans because the FDA has put a stamp on it or something. I'm talking about things like corn, which could absolutely be a food for humans all over the globe, or, or soybeans is another, for example. Right. It's just maddening. And I think sometimes we just allow big business to run the ship. Yep. And if we haven't seen that unfold in a negative way many times already, it's come on, we got to learn the lesson, right? Absolutely. Yeah. We just have to continue fighting for it. Unfortunately, the system is not set up to cater to these reforms. And we've really become pretty entrenched in this structure of cheap, quick food at the expense of all of us and we have to keep fighting for change. Yeah. Here, here. Thank you again so much for joining me today, Aunt AJ. That has been my absolute pleasure. I hope that you'll come back. Likewise. Thank you so much, Karina. I appreciate it. To connect with AJ Albrecht and all of her important work, please visit mercyforanimals.org. For direct links, complete transcripts, expanded show notes, and bonus features, visit caremorebebetter.com. While there, sign up for our newsletter and receive weekly tips with our hashtag Be Better Challenge. Subscribers also receive a welcome gift. It's a five-step guide to help unleash your inner activist. It essentially operates like a plan to help you reach more people and do more good in the specific area that you want to champion. It could be climate science. It could be mercy for animals. It could be any number of things. You could even apply this to a business that you wanted to get off the ground. And I want to hear from you. I'd love to hear your voice. I actually have this microphone icon in the bottom right-hand corner on my website. You can click on it and leave me a voicemail message. I'd love to hear your story. 
Perhaps you have one similar to mine where you went door to door to get people to sign a petition for something that you were passionate about. I want to hear that story. I'd love to tell it if you'll let me too. Now, thank you now and always for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more. We can be better. We can even reduce our reliance on animals for food, improve our global health at the same time, and save this planet. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good.